And as you're getting settled, if you'd turn in your scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As you look at these scriptures this morning, the first one begins with a, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Admittedly, this is not the most exciting verse to have ever begun a message with. I can very well imagine that if you are a, a young boy in here daydreaming about adventures or playing football or fishing or you're a, a mother in your early 30s with three children in tow, you've cleaned up three or four messes and diapers and breakfasts already today, uh, you're an engineer with serious questions about how to keep an aircraft with 15 people on board safely in the air and how to get it back on the ground. Any number of personal situations for each of you and, and hearing about some 2,000-year-old list for old women who are now living alone doesn't necessarily perk up your ears. Uh, you may have already decided that there is no way this guy is going to drone on for 45 minutes on this topic and grab my interest. And widowhood, elderly widowhood, probably holds even less interest to some of you because you thought I had covered that subject with far more time than necessary last week. But hear this. This is an amazing account, I believe, of women soldiers who have given their lives to accomplish incredible feats of guts and courage and they now stand qualified and equipped for even more great battles in this spiritual war for their king. This is about some amazing women who we could look to as examples. This is a description of sisters in Christ who steadily built a lifetime of testimony. These verses show not only their trophies of accomplishment but set the example for men and women, young and old. Jesus said this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. We all know that song. We all know that story. Um, unfortunately, one of the ways we learn that song is don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. It might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build your house once more. That is baloney. There is nothing in here about building the house twice. When that storm comes, it is devastation. And there is nothing left. So as cute as the song may be, and I'm not saying don't sing it. I'm saying it's not giving the picture of what Jesus gives. But these women this morning that we're going to look at, through faithful, steady lives of obedience to their king, 
now embark on an even larger scale of ministry. Let's see what this is about. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. May it correct and direct us, Lord, in every step of our life. Lord, I need correction. I need direction. And my brothers and sisters do. We stumble. We wander off. We, we dishonor you. We go after our own desires. And you've laid before us an example of some that have been faithful. Lord, I pray that whether we're old or young, men or women, we will see and understand what you have to say this morning and walk in obedience to you. You are worthy, Lord. We, we won't understand a thing unless your spirit reveals it to us this morning. Please do that. In your name we pray. Amen. The qualifications of really widows. Tom, or excuse me, Paul opens in verse 3 this section on widows with that statement about really widows. And he closes this section in verse 16 with that same word, really widows. What are we talking about here? Well, there's something mentioned in this first verse. It says that these particular ladies are to be taken into the number. Some of your translations say they would be enrolled or put on the list. We live in a vastly different culture than what Paul, Timothy, and the church of Ephesus existed in during the first century. We have seen Paul, though, in this letter devote a very significant portion on the subject of how he, Timothy, and the church should respond to widows. Now this can seem peculiar because this strong emphasis occurs in the heart of a letter that is concentrating on spiritual warfare strategies for the church. And, and now we're talking about widows. The very existence of the Ephesians church is at stake. That's why this battle is going on, why Paul is writing to Timothy. He wants his church to survive. He wants his church to thrive. In spite of that, there are 14 consecutive verses on the topic of widows. And that tells us at least three very important things. One is there are a large number of widows in Ephesus. Number two, the church is not handling them very well at all. And number three... Ministry regarding widows must become a priority in that church. So vital is this that Paul declares when widows are properly cared for, this is good and acceptable before God. And when they are not, the irresponsible person or church, listen to this, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He has not come down to the level of an unbeliever. He has gone below that because of his negligence to this ministry. There are several key principles we can glean from Paul's instructions. But these verses, however, cannot be copied and neatly overlaid to our time, place, and culture that we live in. Distances, mobility, technology, attitudes and even expectations of independence, government intervention and subsidies, 
or are just some of the contemporary differences that play huge roles in the lives of widows, families, and churches today. Now these differences may seem good or you may consider them bad, but what we have to admit that is what seems an advancement or a convenience often actually increases shallow and irresponsible relationships. We have a lot to learn from Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. Last week in studying verses 3-8, through 8, I finished with these three callings. The first calling was to ministry for widows. The widows are to minister, whatever their age and situation, to a commitment of faithful prayer for the church. That is a role that Paul delineates for them, prayer and supplication. Widows, be involved. A call then to faithfulness of families to care for their widowed mothers and grandmothers. The first line of defense, the first line of provision for widows is through the family. And the third calling was that the church would take responsibility to care for widows who are in true need. Those who have no one and have nothing else. Now verses 9 through 16 present a unique aspect of widow ministry. And this is very specific to a ministry that was not only a benefit to widows, but also utilized the time, skills, and spiritual maturity of these widows for the benefit of the church. John Stott indicates that the widows enrolled on this list, quote, gave themselves to prayer. Now listen to what these ladies had as their job description. Gave themselves to prayer, nursed the sick, cared for the orphans, visited Christians in prison, evangelized pagan women, and taught female converts in preparation for their baptism. That was a significant outreach. He also suggests that this register of widows was not for widows needing support, but for widows capable of offering service. Historically, non-biblical records show that Polycarp and Ignatius mentioned such an order of widows during the first century. Tertullian, writing during the second and third century, as well as a fourth century document called Apostolic Constitutions, mentions a similar widow's list. But that arrangement seemed to wane with time. In fact, says Riken, by the Middle Ages, few, if any, churches followed the guidelines given in 1 Timothy 5. And he also records John Calvin saying that he had to admit that when it came to widows, even his church in Geneva was not organized along biblical lines. So my question to you, and you may be thinking this, is why bother? Why bother with this? Can we really learn from a system of ministry that seems so far removed from ours today? Absolutely we can. The principles of the importance of care for widows, its reflection of true faith in Christ's church, and even the ministry effect and capacity of widows described in these scriptures are living and powerful. The Word of God is living and powerful, as Hebrews 4.12 says. It stands, it leads, it guides, it gives us direction for the future. So what can we, what can we as New Hope Bible Church 2022 gain from these scriptures? Well, now that we know a bit about this ministry list of widows, Paul answers a pertinent question. 
Who gets to be on this list? And he begins with status. The first status he gives is that of age. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. Now there are a lot of conject there's a lot of conjecture given as to why this is. And I'm not going to say some of it. Some of it I thought was baloney. But I'm going to share a few things that seem to make sense. Such an age requirement, first of all, is evidence that this is a unique calling for widows. It was not simply a benevolence list for those in desperate need of support. Otherwise, an age requirement would have made no sense. You see, when a widow in the church is in desperate need, the church helps. Whether she is a 30-year-old woman with five children, a single woman, or whether she's an 85-year-old woman who has been abandoned with no family around her at all. If there is a need, we should help. But this is different. One commentator was insightful, reminding us that 60 years of age in the first century would have been a considerably older woman than a 60-year-old today. Six decades of life brings with it a good amount of wisdom, humility, and experience. A 60-year-old widow was also much less likely to remarry and would have certainly been past childbearing. So she's ready for ministry and work. The second status required is that of marital history. Verse 9 says, And not unless she has been the wife of one man. Literally this translates, She was the wife of one husband. Guthrie says, which he says this, which can only mean that she was not remarried after her husband's death. It may be that a woman who has been married twice was likely to have more relatives who could support her and would be in less need of being enrolled on the church's list. Calvin gives this reasoning. As to the desire of marrying, that danger had been sufficiently guarded against when a woman was more than 60 years old, especially if during her whole life she had not been married to more than one husband. It may be regarded as a sort of pledge of continence and chastity when a woman has arrived at that stage satisfied with having had but one husband. MacArthur writes, Such a woman lived in complete fidelity to her husband in a chaste, pure, unspotted marriage relationship. And Riken adds, Part of what prepared her for faithful ministry was a faithful marriage. Now besides the status requirements, there were also performance qualifications. A widow for the special ministry list, in verse 10 says, is to be well reported for good works. Now this is where this begins to open up way past the widows and the testimony of anyone who claims the name of Christ. Poor performance, good works. First of all, she had to have a reputation that was established. A reputation established. Her life, in other words, tells you who she is and what she believes. Now this could be a heading over the good works that Paul then lists, but I believe it's very significant to highlight that this widow had a strong reputation. An established reputation of good works is not an overnight success, nor is it a flamboyant performance. Reputations, reputations that are good, such as this woman's, require time. They require consistency. They require perseverance, faith, and maturity. Those are not accomplished overnight. 
These are reflected in how she has lived. She has, first of all, raised children that can be as nurtured children. Now, this is one of the most important roles a Christian mother will ever perform. And we know that it's not easy. It is a 24-7 responsibility with very few, if any, breaks during the week. It requires a vast array of knowledge and skill, knowledge and skill, covering health, education, godliness, business, interpersonal relations, diet, safety, time management, and more. And most of you mothers who have been at this say, well, that's just the beginning. It requires so much to be faithful in this area. And it cannot be specialized on one age group or gender. I was talking with a a young college student the other day that is doing their uh, student teaching this next semester for second graders. Well, this particular person knows what age group she has. And she doesn't have to deal with what a woman raising children does. In most cases, raising children includes boys and girls. And knowing and loving and understanding from the time that child is in the womb until that child has grown and become an adult and perhaps 20 years later is on their own. That age span, the gender span. And on top of that, if all of those variables could be taken care of, Every child that you have has a different personality. Has that not been true? Each one is different. Now, this is quite a challenge. That's why it's one of the tops in this list. This bringing up of children could even include in those days raising up orphans. Such a challenge and opportunity is able to develop great character, ability, and dependence upon God. Paul sees this as equipping the widow with credentials and experience for effective ministry in the church. She also has demonstrated hospitality. If she has lodged strangers, she's demonstrated hospitality. You see, hotels, Airbnbs, motels, they were non-existent in the first century. The inns that were in existence were dirty and dangerous and often places of prostitution. Christians, particularly preachers and teachers, depended upon other Christians for places to stay as they ministered. Bassler wrote, Caring for strangers reflected God's hospitable grace, encouraged interaction between Christian communities, and facilitated the movements of traveling Christian preachers, and thus the spread of the gospel. You see, she was even a part of that, the spread of the gospel. She also served the saints in humility. If she has washed the saints' feet. The eligible widow is now described with the great character quality of her Lord and Savior. John chapter 13. We love this story. The humility of our Savior. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended... The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, 
and that he had come from God and was going to God, did what? Let a rousing hip hip hooray for me, a cheers, let me tell you how great I am. What did he do in that moment? He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which with he was girded. Utter humility of a slave. And Paul is not saying that this widow must wash the feet of every person in the church at every opportunity. What he is stating is that she does take every opportunity to humbly serve her brothers and sisters, even in the most menial, unknown ways. That is what Jesus did. And she follows him. Do you? This widows, these widows followed him. It goes on to say in verse 14 of John 13, Jesus speaking, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do them. Do them. And she has shown compassion to the needy. If she has relieved the afflicted. Some translation says relieve those in distress. Those in trouble. Uh, Literally this means those under pressure. And when it says she has assisted. This was more than dropping her a note. Or encouraging her along the way. Literally this means to have provided some sort of financial assistance along the way. She has given from what she has to help those truly in need. And then finally it says she demonstrates perseverance. She has a long, strong track record if she has diligently followed every good work. This widow, this widow is not an overnight sensation of a saint. Nor is she soft or fragile in her service. She has worked long and hard for the cause of her king, Jesus Christ. Much like Tabitha. Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, 36, it reads, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But we come to a transition here. You see, not everyone, not every widow is to be on the list. Verse 11 says, But refuse the younger widows. There is a disqualification here of young widows. The prohibition to the young widows is not because they have done anything wrong or sinful. But to be a widow on this list would require fulfillment of Paul's admonition to Titus. Here's what Paul says to Titus in the letter coming up. Chapter 2 verse 3. The older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. 
And these younger widows would not have had the opportunity to have fulfilled those roles as the older widows have done. And here are Paul's important reasons for not adding these young women to the ministry order. Reasons for disqualifications of young women. Number one, there is a gradual drifting. From where? There's a gradual drifting from Christ. 11b says, For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ. Another version says, When their passions draw them away from Christ. NASB is a little bit more specific. It says, When they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ. At a young age, they still want to be married. There is a kindling or a fire within them that they would desire that. Broader perspective is added by Calvin. He says, A more luxurious and abandoned course of life is a sort of wantonness against Christ to whom they had pledged their fidelity. They have left Christ, drifted from Christ to the flesh because they desire to marry. Now that doesn't sound well coming out of my mouth that that would be wrong. And marriage is by no means bad. In fact, Paul commands it to the younger women in these verses that we're studying. But in the case of being on the ministry list, that would require that these widows abandon their commitment. Verse 12 says, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Now there's two ways of looking at this first faith. Some commentators interpret the word faith to mean completely casting off their trust in Christ. In other words, abandoning the faith of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Verse 12 here, they may be pointing to widows who have in desperation actually remarried an unbeliever. In other words, they remarried not in the Lord. This is a repudiation of the place of Christ as Lord of their lives. They have traded Christ for a pagan husband's security. And Paul has seen that happening. And he warns against that. But it does seem that faith here perhaps is more Mindful of a vow of some kind. One of the translations says that first faith is a previous pledge. The NIV reads first pledge. As part of the personal standard agreed upon with the church, a widow on the list would be fully devoted to ministry for Christ. You see, she would no longer have any of the godly responsibilities a husband and children rightly bring. Her time, her energy, and her mind would solely belong to Christ and His church. Such a vow was a serious undertaking. Ecclesiastes 5 demands that when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And that is all about what Paul is saying here. These young widows don't take on this vow of chastity for the rest of your life in ministry hastily. And don't do it while you are young. You see, no one wants to see anyone put in the position of reneging on their publicly declared pledge to God because they now solely desire a husband for a life partner. Don't take that vow. 
One writer added, incidentally, Paul's warning shows one inherent liability in the way that orders of nuns are established in the Roman Catholic Church. Through the centuries, the Roman Church gradually lowered the age from 60 until finally even teenagers could take a vow of celibacy. They also allowed women who had never been married to become nuns. But the Bible wisely restricts such a vow to widows of at least 60 because younger women are less likely to be able to keep their promise, end quote. But you see, that's not the only reason Paul commanded young women to be, not to be put on this ministry list. He warns here of the likelihood of resulting sin. Verse 13, resulting sin. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also, it is, uh, but also idlers. You see, it is not as if the younger woman is instantly aimless. No, she didn't suddenly become an idler at widowhood. She learns it. Because of the circumstance of no financial responsibilities, no family responsibilities, and a lessening of her passion for Jesus, she begins to slip into or learn to be an idler, slothful, lazy. And it doesn't stop with idleness, says Paul. She becomes a gossip and a busybody. And that word busybody means one who moves around. One who moves around. And they are saying things in the process which they ought not to say. Here Paul assigns a title and a description to young widows who begin to drift from their commitment to Christ. As part of their ministry, as part of the ministry of these widows, these older widows, they would go from home to home of members of the church. And they would help young mothers with many children on their hands. They would help teach. They would help provide what was needed. They would comfort people in distress. So they would be at many places during the day, during the week, trying to minister for Christ. But there was a risk in this. As part of their ministry, they would visit these homes. But what seemed like a healthy benefit soon became sour. The consequence of idleness is described again by Calvin. He says, nothing delights them, these young widows who drift into idleness. Nothing delights them more than the liberty of running from one place to another. And especially when, being freed from the burden of a family, they have nothing to do at home. Matthew Henry says, it is seldom that those who are idle are idle only. They learn to be tattlers and busybodies and to make mischief among neighbors and sow discord among brethren. Gossip and slander. What's Proverbs say? Proverbs eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Proverbs sixteen twenty eight. A dishonest man spreads strife, and whisperers separate close friends. So these women were causing division. Proverbs twenty nineteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. And Proverbs 26.20 For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Another pastor wrote, It takes serious-minded, mature, godly women to minister in homes to women and families. And because of these very serious reasons, Paul gives counsel to young women in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, 
Therefore, I desire that the younger widows, and then he gives four pursuits. Now, when he says desire here, it's more than just a personal preference of Paul. He is very serious about this direction. It is almost tantamount to a command. Younger women are to seek after four pursuits. First, to marry. Secondly, to bear children. Neither of those two need explanation, do they? It's very simple. He's encouraging younger widows, if possible, to marry, to bear children, and then to manage the house. Managing the home is much more than raising children, which, as we've already talked about, is a full-time job. Managing would include all aspects of making the home a godly refuge for the husband and children. It would involve ministry also. In the same way, we saw the older widows, what they had done during their lifetime that we described in verse 10. So these younger widows had much ahead for them to, to press on toward. They would bring up children. They would show hospitality to strangers. They would serve saints. They would provide for those struggling. And they would do all this faithfully and diligently. What would happen? What would be the result? Well, such a life like that would give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You live like that. And it is a demonstration to the world of who you are and what you believe. When it reads here, give no opportunity, the word opportunity is a military term. It speaks about a military base of operations. The lifestyle of the now married, young, former widow would literally crush without a word the slander of enemies of Christ and His church. A faithful, diligent way of living will always be a spiritual war base for the cause of the gospel, not a base of operations for the adversary. And that doesn't matter whether you're an engineer, you're a housewife, you're a teacher, you're a student, you're a 12-year-old. A faithful life will be a place for the advancement of the gospel. How you live really matters. 1 Peter 3.15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. What changed the evildoers? What changed their, their perspective or how they see you? It was your good conduct. 1 Peter 2.12 having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. There would be no base of operation for the adversary to speak reproachfully. 2 Corinthians 8.21 goes on, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And then Titus 2, 7 and 8, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, have nothing, having nothing evil to say of you. Our lives speak volumes out there. Too often it seems like Christians are 
trying to not be set apart too much so that they don't look like kooks. So they don't seem to be weirdos or nerds because of the holy life they may choose to live. And so we see compromises, and I'm not attacking anyone. It's within me at times. It's within my family. It's within all sorts of situations. We are prone to not want to stand out and make a statement because of our good works. I'm not saying call people's attention to them. I'm not saying speak holier than thou. I'm saying walk with Christ in obedience to what he calls us to be. And it will be a defense to those who would speak reproachfully of Christ. Now one of the reasons Paul speaks so strongly here is that there is evidence already from some of the young widows. Look at verse 15. For some have already turned aside after Satan. See, that's in past tense. Some have already turned. Paul's warning about the potential disaster of the lifestyle of younger widows was no idle siren going off. It was already happening before their very eyes. And there was a tragic rebellion. You see, there is no neutrality in this life. Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In fact, these widows have turned, it says, not to neutrality. They have turned after Satan. This is very, very sobering. They have turned after Satan. This is sobering. In John, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this to religious leaders. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus speaks directly. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul would pointedly write this, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That would not fly very well on a feminist newsletter. But it's not just feminists. It's not just women. It's men. It's, it's all of us who want to turn away from the things of God and pursue foolishness to a disastrous end. And that is why Paul is crying out and setting up the structure Paul closes his strong plea for the care and ministry of widows, highlighting the priority of responsibility. Our last verse this morning. He writes, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. The responsibility of widows' families. And he decides, he cites first the condition of the responsibility. If any believing man or woman has widows... And some translations, I think the ESV that Tom read from, the NASB, others actually read, if any believing woman has relatives, her who are widows. And the next says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows. Now, this verse, if you take this translation, could pertain to single women or widows who are not in need of support and are able to actually take care of their widowed mother or grandmother. Hendrickson writes, 
Is there then no work in the kingdom for a young widow or woman with means and with the desire to help the good cause? Oh yes, there is. In addition to what she is able to do in a personal way for the church, prayer, and all those in need, make personal visits to those in need, there's another way in which she can help the church. And in keeping with Paul's exhortation here in chapter 5, we know that this verse does not allow an escape hatch for the responsibility of men with widows. The theme Paul has clearly and repeatedly sounded is that if anyone in the church is related to a widow who is in need, then let them relieve them. This is the response of responsibility. Take care of them. Relieve them. And don't leave it to the church. Do not let the church be burdened. Why? That it may relieve those who are really widows. And we're back to Paul's original introduction. Know and take care of those who are really widows. Those in need. Now as I was studying this, I thought about these ladies and how they move into this ministry at this point in their lives. I thought, this is, this is an amazing platoon of warriors. They're out there on the battlefront, in the prisons, in the orphanages, feeding those in need, encouraging young women, helping families grow. They had built a lifetime of trophies for the kingdom of their Savior, Jesus Christ, through steady, faithful servitude. And now, they were qualified and equipped to even more incredible service in the battlefield of their king. They were this way because they had heard that Jesus had said to his disciples one time, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Don't waste this life. Whether you're a young woman or a young man, whether you're 15, 60, or 85, be about God's work. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. The days ahead, you are building now, many of you. Your preparation, your reputation, who you are. Invest yourself in Christ and His Word. Follow Him diligently and faithfully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for these widows. As I pray and think about this, I wish I could see them gathered there in the church whom you have committed this ministry to. Father, please lead us to walk in obedience, to deny ourselves, to put ourselves to the task that you have given to us like these women did. And Lord, help us to listen to you in, in the timing, in the place, and the way to do that as you gave instruction through Paul about not everybody's on that list and I just pray Father that you would give us wisdom in how to follow through and live for you with all our heart wherever we are and that you may use us obscurely 
or on stage or with dirt under our fingernails, with blood, whatever it may be, Father. Please glorify your name through us. I thank you for this word from Paul about about these widows. I would never have anticipated that there was so much to learn. I should have, but I didn't. You are so great, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.